With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. At reparations, as in reparatory justice, including restitution and cash payments, is absolutely necessary to address the racial wealth gap, but also the moral recognition gap of slavery, neo-slavery, and the ongoing effects of America's past in the present. Human uh, chattel, capital, uh, as in enslaved Africans, uh, essentially laid the foundation for America to become an economic uh, superpower. In the midst of all that we are going through, we have the moral capacity, we have the economic capacity, we have the civic capacity as a country in the midst of this racial reckoning to address the past perpetuating the present and that may well haunt us in the future unless we issue checks, unless we engage in restitution, and most importantly, unless we recognize the harm that we visited upon black folks uh, in a way that really brings together the whole of the country. Tonight at Our Common Ground. We're proud to begin our one-month series, Reparations, the Debt That is Owed. Tonight, Episode 1, The Debt That is Owed, Reparations, and the Descendants of U.S. Shadow Slavery. Joining us in this first episode of this four-part series, Dr. William Sandy Darity joins us once again, and A. Kirsten Mullen. They are co-authors of... From Here to Eternity, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. America's chickens! Coming home! You're gonna sing to swim, you're gonna learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Alternative activist empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to power. And ourselves. Passes a three strike law and then wants us to sing God bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. God. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. 
talk, talk, that matters. matters. You just don't give up, just don't give up. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground, the Black Truth Sanctuary, where we honor not only what is important to us, who has been important to us, but we honor the language in which we hold all of those things. If you are looking to get into our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Tonight we begin the Our Common Ground series, Reparations, the Debt That is Owed. In this first episode, we have with us Dr. Sandy Darity, Dr. William A. J. Dr. William A. Uh, Darity Jr. and Kirsten A. Kirsten Mullen the co-authors of the book that I have been asking you to read for over a month to prepare for this series. And the book is the most important publication available to you to understand exactly what debt is owed. So we hope that you did. If not, um, you will just have to catch up. The book is From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. And it is my pleasure to have joining us once again Dr. Sandy Darity. Thank you so much for being with us once again. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, well, uh, you know, each, each time you come to this easy. show, I yeah. have something special for you. And here it is. We're going to take a minute to welcome you back because we are so we are so excited about the progress that you have made since the last time we have talked on this subject. You know I always have to bring you some harmonica blues. I'm here with Kirsten Mullen. Uh so Kirsten, whenever you welcome want to both our of us to come in. Uh, thank you. Thank so you so I'm, we're we're so pleased to uh have both of you and we're honored to have both of you. And people, you need to realize that you're about to listen to treasure right here on Our Common Ground tonight because getting these two together here is just an important uh, venture in our understanding of one of the most fierce issues before us as a people. Sandy, let me just say that... 
since the last time you were here, you have not only moved mountains, you have built mountains. And I am so grateful. Uh, I am one of those 60s hippies that in 1968 pressed myself into the reparations discourse and movement, anyone that I could find. And uh, I look at what you have been able to achieve over the last five years, and it has been monumental, um, especially with culminating last year with the book, the kind of research that you have done, the kind of capacity that you have created for our people to begin to understand, because the last time you were here, you know one of the things that I always talk about, and I still talk about it, is our the vacuum of information, education, and understanding on the issue of reparations and why I am always hailing the idea that there is a debt owed. So thank you so very much, both of you. Let's well, talk about that, that was quite generous. Uh, I just I just wanted to say that uh, I think for both of us, more often it feels like we're pushing against the mountain right. than necessarily yeah. building one. Right. <laughs> well, imagine that I came away from the Gary Convention really never having had anyone speak to the issues of the history that I learned as a student in the Jim Crow South. Uh, I have been asked over and over in the last maybe week and a half uh, how I learned about the Tulsa Massacre. And because I had black teachers and, and I was in a segregated school system, we learned about the Tulsa Massacre in the fifth grade. Uh, it was a subject of, of American history, U.S. history. And also the community, which we don't – you talk about it a lot. You and Kirsten talk about it a lot, and I think people don't get it, that in addition to Tulsa, Rosewood, Wilmington, there were many other communities that were prosperous, that was de uh, devastated by racial violence. And I grew up in one of those, and it is a history – that even to today, even in Black History, February 2021, people in Palm Beach County continue to try to deny and call it folklore. So, <laughs> and, it, and, and it's really yeah. interesting. I'm very interested in talking with uh, Kirsten because she's a, a student and scholar, lecturer on the issues of She's a, a writer and a folklorist, and they are still calling the Sticks Massacre a folklore in the local newspapers. So we can talk about that. But yeah, when I yeah. say that you have built a mountain, I, what I am referencing is the vast and very deep and factual crater in which we can now discuss reparations. Yeah. 
I, mean, I think we absolutely have been working hard to build on, um, you know, the research, the um, the shared stories from uh, from our ancestors, really. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm very interested to hear um, a bit more about your experience, you know, in Palm Beach County. But you know, starting with Tulsa. You know, we have been uh, saying how incredible it has been to hear President Biden uh, confirm that the massacre did take place and to, to, to let Americans know that it was incredibly destructive, that it took place over several days, and to, to, to say, yes, lives were lost, uh, many, many people were injured, uh, you know, black Americans' personal property was destroyed, and then confiscated and appropriated by the very, you know, the very white mobsters who had inflicted this violence upon them. I mean, to the best of our knowledge, he's the first and only American American president who has acknowledged this fact, and that's something that I think is really, really important, uh, especially you know in this era when, as you say, uh, people's lived experience is being denied, um, you know, and, and and rendered, you know, um, uh, rendered fiction. So I think mm-hmm, certainly mm-hmm. in, you know, many black families, these stories have been shared, but, you know, many folks did not have exposure to these stories. I mean, so you know, we came to North Carolina as adults, but our children were educated in the public schools, and, you know, they were not taught about the Wilmington, North Carolina massacre of 1898. Uh, you know, it's been only in maybe the last two decades, actually, that that uh, story has been told. And, you know, initially folks were saying, oh, this is the only coup d'etat that happened in the United States. Well, that's not true at all. There have been a number of cases where white Americans sought to either thwart, um, you know, blacks from going to the polls uh, to, uh, you know, to vote on, uh, during the period of Reconstruction, to vote on fellow Republicans, um, or, um, you know, they were um, determined to overturn a duly elected black and white, uh, you know, electoral uh, body. You know, they didn't care for the results of the election and so decided that they would, um, you know, either run out of town or, or murder the, um, you know, the black Republicans who had been elected. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we were looking at um, Fort Bend County, Texas, where um, the Jaybird and Woodpecker War took place in 1888 uh, and 89. And this was exactly the case there. The, Dem- the white Democrats decided that they were not going to stand for this biracial uh, group of folks who'd been elected and um, you know, proceeded to attack them. Several hundred people were killed. Uh, and then for the next 70 years, the Democrats, uh, held held sway in political circles in Fort Bend County. Um, some 441 uh, white men signed the um, the White Man's Declaration of Independence, and um, mm-hmm. you know they were they were very clear, very adamant about you know uh, how they thought things should um, how how government should should take place in Fort Bend County, Texas. Yeah, and we we are convinced that. Uh, the sentiments that are associated with these types of massacres, uh, which included the overturning of duly elected governments uh, in a number of, of, of towns and cities, 
that that's the same sentiment that informed the events of January 6th of this year. Mm-hmm. What What is so wonderful and important about your book, From Here to Equality, is that the central and core theme um, shows, helps us understand, helps us to see the sustained American failure to recognize the pernicious impact of white supremacy and the sustained American failure to adopt national policies that would reverse the effects of white supremacy and that at each point that the nation has stood at some some revolving or some some crossroad with respect to its racial future, it has chosen the wrong path. That's exactly. I I, yeah. I think that is what comes from the book that is so important. But l- let's for a minute, and I do have a clip, and I'd like to talk about. When we talk about reparations in 2021, what are we talking about? And I specifically am asking our audience to listen very carefully because there's a lot of fallacious discussion and discourse going on within the community that serves as an impediment. So here is A. Kirsten Mullen talking about what we are talking about when we say reparation pays the debt and what reparations is, and we're going to come back and talk to Dr. Sandy Darity and A. Kirsten Mullen about it. Reparations are a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for grievous injustice. Where African Americans are concerned, the grievous injustices that make the case reparations include slavery, legal segregation, or Jim Crow, and ongoing discrimination and stigmatization. ARC, A-R-C, the, the acronym that stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure, characterizes the three essential elements of the reparations program that we are advocating. Acknowledgement. Kirsten, can you uh, embellish on these three, the three parts that encompass what we mean when we say reparations, the arc. Yes, happily. Um, you know, as we're saying, you know, acknowledgement is this moment when the perpetrators of the harms, um, you know, sit down and talk about, you know, all the ways that they benefited from those actions. And they, uh, you know, work with African Americans to figure out what will it take to make um, to make amends. Um, and it's not solely a case of an apology; it's also a commitment to redress, a commitment to restitution, a commitment to some form of tangible compensation that will, um, you know, lead to you know Black Americans, um, you know enjoying a greater sense of well-being uh, and having an opportunity to, to participate more fully in American life. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the moment when black Americans step into full citizenship rights in this country, which has yet to happen. 
and then there's redress. You know, and then you know, the, the, uh, you know, following that too would be you know redress uh, and closure. So redress, you know, as we say, you know, can take multiple forms. Um, you know, we're talking about atonement or restitution, um, but you know, you can't restore uh, these, you know, the enslaved people to a period of you know, not, they're not having been enslaved. I mean, those people um, have, are long gone. And, in fact, many of the, um, you know, black people who were enslaved in this country were born enslaved and so never knew a different kind of life. So they can't be restored to a condition of, you know, that preceded their enslavement. But it is possible to, um, you know, to focus on their descendants and to um, make it possible for them to attain, um, you know, a, to attain a place, you know, to get to a place where, you know, um, it's as if the injustice had not taken place. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why we focus on restitution and not on atonement. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we get sort of talk about atonement acts uh, and racial equity issues, you know, perhaps a later part in the program, but, but we're focusing on redress. And then we also talk about closure. Um, you know, closure uh, involves kind of a reconciliation, a mutual reconciliation between black Americans and the folks who benefited from slavery, uh, from legal segregation and ongoing discrimination toward black Americans. And this is the moment when, you know, blacks and whites would, you know, basically, you know, come to terms about the past, confront the present, and decide that going forward, um, you know, we will have this new transformed United States, but one in which these harms are not, you know, recommitted. Uh, you know, we don't have a revisiting of these harms, and no new harms are committed against black people. And at, you know, at, once that you know, point is reached, then there would be no further claims that black people would make, uh, you know, on the federal government. But basically, you know, we're talking about you know, restitution that would eliminate racial disparities in, in wealth, in income, uh, in education, health, sentencing and incarceration, uh, political participation, you know, basically, you know, creating a very different kind of world for black Americans um, when you're looking at both the political and the social landscape. Mm-hmm. We, um, you know, Sandy, we, we let's, let's em- talk about – go ahead. Well, I was going to say that, that we tend to emphasize wealth as the target for a reparations plan because we view wealth, which we distinguish from income, and this is, this is very important, where wealth is uh, the net value of your personal property and is something that you can utilize in the instances where your income, which is predominantly driven by your earnings, when your income falls or when your income is lost, uh, if you are a wealthier individual, you have a cushion against that loss. And, and we think that the difference in wealth between blacks and whites is the best uh, indicator, the best economic indicator of the cumulative intergenerational effects of white supremacy. And so, uh, so we place a focus on elimination of the racial wealth gap as a priority for a reparations plan. In addition to that, we specify that the individuals who should receive reparations are black Americans who have ancestors who were enslaved in the United States. And the rationale for that specificity is because 
That's the community of individuals whose ancestors were denied the 40-acre land grants that they were promised in the aftermath of the Civil War. So that's where we get the foundation for the debt that you're talking about. It is indeed a debt, a debt that has not been paid for 156 years. Uh, and then uh, a final point that we we make is that these uh, the, the form that redress should take is direct payments to the individual recipients. Uh, just as redress has taken that form, in other instances where victimized communities have received reparative justice. Uh, and, 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 you know, important examples would include uh, the German government's payments to victims of the Holocaust. In the United States, we have an excellent model for reparations for black Americans in the form of the payments that were made to Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during World War II. So uh, it's been done. We know how to do it. It's time to do it. Yeah. You know, again, as you said earlier, you were talking about the crossroads, you know, all of these moments in our nation's history when the federal government could have made a different decision and had, uh, you know, and consequently, uh, you know, created a very different kind of life for black people. Um, you know, we, we, we you know, the, the nation, the republic could have been founded as a slave free nation, uh, but it wasn't. You know, so that was one, you know, one, one uh, very significant uh, crossroad. Uh, and then the decision to uh, deny the um, recently emancipated, you know, formerly enslaved people these 40-acre land grants. Uh, now, we know at the same time, uh, beginning in 1862, the federal government uh, created a Homestead Act, which made 160-acre parcels of land available to white Americans uh, including recent immigrants from Europe. Uh, so this was an opportunity for, you know, them to take possession of, you know, this, this property at the below market rate. Um, and if they improve the land, um, you know, they, they basically had no expense, uh, you know, no payments were made to the federal government. This was a tax-free, uh, basically, gift from the federal government. You know, they were... Uh, being settled in the western part, the western territory of the United States. So this was actually, um, you know, the way that the, uh, the United States completed its uh, settler colonial project, you know, because these are lands that had just recently been occupied by Native American people, but they were settling these uh, white Americans uh, through on through the Homestead Acts. Now, the 40-acre land grant that black um, Americans were promised and then denied uh, was a land that was stretching from uh, the South Sea Islands of South Carolina across, uh, you know, the base of the, the country to the St. John's River, uh, the mouth of the St. John's River in Florida. These were lands that had recently been confiscated uh, uh, from and abandoned by the Confederates. So, so somewhat different um, you know, kind of circumstances here. But you have white Americans being... Uh, uh, allowed to receive these 160-acre land grants, and Black Americans promised and denied 40. So even even if, you know, so we're starting out with a four-to-one uh, discrepancy, and then the Black um, you know the Black emancipated folks were denied even those 40 acres. But um, we know that something of like 250 million acres of land uh, was given 
uh, in the, under the Homestead Act, uh, which is a huge amount of land. I mean, that's a, a land mass yes. equivalent to, you know, all of California and Texas combined. And, you know, so 1.5 million white families uh, were the recipients of these Homestead Acts, and that translates to about 45 million white households today that are still reaping the benefits of this single federal program. I mean, it's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, we have seen, you know, we have seen, um, you know, situations where, um, you know, they have been able to, so, you know, I, I was going to say, when you think about what one could do with this land, um, you know, this is property that you could live on yourself. Um, if there's lumber on the land, if there are minerals on the land, uh, if there's uh, wildlife that's yours to use uh, or to uh, to sell, uh, you could subdivide it, you could lease it, you could, um, uh, you know, use it as collateral for a loan, for a business, uh, you know, venture. You could, um, you know, you could, um, you could uh, use the money, you know, to send your kids to college so they emerge debt free. Uh, but these 45 million individuals, um, you know, not households, but 45 million individuals today have, it's, it's almost like they're receiving a, um, you know, a monthly dividend check from the federal government. Um, you know, one of our colleagues, Jennifer Mueller, uh, with one of her classes, asked the students to, you know, investigate their family's wealth position. And uh, the class of about 150 students, um, 100 of whom were white, 12 or 13 of uh, the students were black, and the rest were of color. And, you know, the students are extremely skeptical, skeptical about what they might find. But, in fact, uh, over a third of the white students discovered a land grant um, you know, patent in their family. Um, and none of the black students and none of the students of color uh, had any, you know, learned of any evidence of a land grant in their families. And then in one extraordinary case, uh, this was a family that had received a land grant in 1880 in the Texas Panhandle area. And uh, eventually there were eight children. Then after the father, who had received the, the patent, um, died, his widow decides to move with the, uh, their eight children to Austin, Texas, uh, to increase the likelihood that the kids could go to college. Six of the eight uh, received college degrees, and uh, then after, and they've been leasing the land up to this point, so receiving, you know, um, receiving revenue from the property. Then after their mother dies, the eight children decide to continue to lease the land and divide the profits eight ways. Then in 1980, a full 100 years after the land grant had been uh, made, uh, natural gas is discovered on the property. And in that first year alone, the, the, prop, the revenue from that, that natural gas deposit was over $100,000. So it's just a, you know, these are the kinds of stories that um, we're learning white Americans have in their past, but many of them are not aware of it. You know, many of the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, today's uh, families are not aware of this. And you know, we had said, gosh, you would think that these would be the kinds of stories that would be, you know, lovingly shared and, and, and told over and over and over every time the family came together. But in fact, 
for many of these families, the um, you know the evidence of these land grants and of the government assistance that their family received, and in many cases continue to receive, you know, this asset building um, uh, you know that they have received from the federal government is not part of the family story. So it's almost been erased from their stories, even as they are reaping the benefits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because they don't want to be known as welfare queens. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> there are families yeah, who are yeah, quite clear yeah, yeah. about. <laughs> this is, these are the original government handouts. Yeah, these are. Yeah, these are. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was a government handout, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's with the white people. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, we would say that we don't begrudge them this, these government mm -hmm. uh, support, but it simply should have gone to everyone. But there's another way, uh, Kirsten and and Sandy, that where those stories are important to be told in the narrative of American history, and especially in our uh, black collective, and that is that when t in telling those stories, people feel less fearful or I wouldn't say fearful, less reluctant about claiming a position of demanding reparations for black people. Um, yes. <laughs> that black people would be more confident and understand that this is nothing new. This right. restitution is nothing new for this government. Um, let, let's talk about, uh, I'm always trying to help my audience be less fearful and more confident about this demand to, uh, for reparations. Uh, I attended uh, two or three sessions of the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission of South Africa uh, as an observer. And um, looking at those in terms of making corporate decisions about for and inter uh, recommendations to an international company. But would truth and rec reconciliation, um, a process of truth and reconciliation, be part of the plan as you see it? Can you talk about Barbara? Yeah, so, so yeah, uh, uh, Congress, Congress, uh, Congress person, person Barbara Lee. <laughs> yeah, Got to get the, got to get the gender timber right these days. Uh, Barbara Lee has a proposal for a truth commission, which we think is actually a very good idea, uh, especially given the fact that people knew so little about massacres like the one that took place in Tulsa and have no sense of the fact that there were actually a hundred of these or so that took place between the end of the Civil War and the beginning of uh, World War II. Okay. So uh, we think that there could be a tremendous value in a commission that has the responsibility for truth-telling. Uh, we're less confident about the notion of reconciliation. And in fact, in, in Barbara, Barbara Lee's uh, proposal, she doesn't actually use the term reconciliation. The reason we have some reservations about that, although we sometimes use the term ourselves, is because the, the because of the prefix "rec." Uh, we we have not had uh, a previous period of racial conciliation 
to reconcile ourselves towards. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it would be it would be an act of reparations that would be the foundation for having the first round of conciliation. So, uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, so we think a truth commission is a good idea. The, the South African case is a bit troublesome, though, and I'll, I'll ask Kirsten to talk about this a bit more. Uh, well, we're, well we're, let me just say this. I'm thinking of it in yeah. two parts, the truth before the reparations and the reconciliation part of it uh, possibly coming after the disbursement of whatever policy comes down. And I'm glad that you um, mentioned um, Congresswoman uh, Lee's uh, proposal because that gets lost in it. But, Kirsten, I know that you have done a lot of work and you do um, discuss in, in great detail the notion of what a truth commission does and the history of how sometimes they fail. I know in South Africa the reconciliation thing uh, has never really happened. Yeah, this is true. Um, I think part of the difficulty with the South African case was that they set up this dichotomy, you know, that, um, you know, purported that the two sides were, quote, equal. You know, that, that, that they, they both had, what was it, good people on both sides, you know, which mm-hmm. was absolutely mm-hmm. not the case. And this is not what I think many of the, the, you know, the black South Africans thought the process was going to be about. And uh, I think many of them felt misled by it. Uh, and also that they, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the administrators were all too quick to say, well, Anyone who you know, comes forth and um, you know describes the atrocities that they were part of will be pardoned. You know, so there was not this holding these individuals to account. Uh, you know, there, mm-hmm. were, there were no consequences in this case. But then the other part of it too is they were not focusing on the um, you know all of the ways that the black Africans had been oppressed by this regime. And so there was no focus on what their financial situation looked like, um, you know, what was the racial wealth gap looking like, uh, or any remedies to that. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. gathering information in and of itself is not sufficient. You know, yes, it's really important to, um, you know, creating the public record. I think it's really important, you know, it's both for individuals to, um you know, to kind of come together and crystallize their own thinking about what's happened. I think that's really, really important. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's a, mm-hmm. these commissions can serve as a mechanism for uniting uh, communities behind the idea of redress. Um, they can mm-hmm. also serve as a way to, to um, you know, a way for organizations that, you know, may have had uh, a purpose that was similar to reparations mm-hmm. or redress, mm-hmm. but not their focus, decide that this is something they want to commit their resources uh, to. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, also it's really interesting that we're having this conversation in, this, in the same uh, space of time where we have a government who's refusing to even do a truth commission or an investigation around uh, a riotous attack on yes. our capital and our government. 
And, exactly. and you have to wonder in this country that is so immature whether or not um, it is going to be diluted. And one of the things that I see, Kirsten, is that the Truth Commission uh, and, and the Lee proposal is it bill is really um, a way in which to dilute the import of this entire undertaking and demand. It, I, I, I just, uh, I think in the immaturity and the brand of white supremacy in the U.S. that everybody is always, especially the political elite, um, and the capitalists are always looking at a way of how can we soften this, how can we minimize the output, the in in product of this, and it's and 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 it makes you very very anxious about how we are going to uh, approach this. Which brings me to my question about payments and. I mean, there are even within our own collective. I, I, I'm reluctant to call it a community anymore because of the 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 the, the, imp, uh, the significant import and impact of gentrification um, and the divisiveness in which we approach anything that is focused to uh, address racial injustice we get so divided so i'm calling it the black collective that people are reluctant to grasp the concept of how payments would work under a reparations plan so i want to ask you both uh two questions and ask you to address it and that is, what is your vision as the expert? And the other is, how does HR 40 begin to address payments? So we're going to do a tag team on this one. <laughs> so the okay. first thing I wanted to say was that I think it's really important in these, um, in these hearing processes to uh, create a space for the stories of the harms to become part of the public record. I mean, I think that's really, really important. And this is one of the things that was really vital uh, in the work that uh, the Japanese redress movement, um, you know, caused to happen. This is the, the work of the Commission on Wartime uh, Relocation of in, uh, uh, Internment of Civilians. Um, but also, you know, the, their process forced the, you know, the federal government to have to say why it did what it did and to try to justify its actions. Uh, and mm -hmm. so that, you know, is another important piece of, you know, this kind of um, uh, the, the inquiry process, you know, the investigative process, is to have all of these different groups uh, that had, um, you know, an investment in this question of black, of, uh, you know, black people's history and how black people have been treated in the United States, have them go on record talking both about the harms and then, you know, uh, the attempts of federal government to try to justify the work that they did. But, uh, but you wanted to talk about the sort of the black collective and, um, you, know, how, um, you know, how our vision, we hope, is, you know, continuing to shape this conversation about 
you know, what payments would look like and where they would come from, but also, um, and then we'll segue to talk a bit about HR 40. Yeah, I was, was going to say that uh, the value of a truth commission in part, if it generates an accurate and, uh, and detailed report, uh, is that it can facilitate providing additional support, popular support, for the reparations effort. Uh, and I think that that was one of the significant dimensions of what the uh, uh, what was accomplished in the context of the Japanese-American case, where the report that was generated indicated that there was no evidence that was uh, present at the time when the internment took place that Japanese Americans were a security threat to the nation. Uh, but they were still incarcerated anyway. And, and that made it uh, crystal clear that there was a case for compensation or restitution. And so I think that that's, that's a potential benefit of a truth commission is uh, you can further build the case for restitution or compensation by providing detailed evidence of the array of atrocities that have taken place in the United States directed against black black people, uh, particularly black people whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States. Uh, we know from a study that was conducted uh, in, in 2000, a survey that was taken in 2000, that at that point, uh, only 4% of white Americans endorsed reparations Mm -hmm. uh, for black Americans. By the year 2018, that percentage had risen to about 16. Still relatively low, but considerably larger than 4%. And then the most recent polls that we've seen that were taken this year suggest that the proportion is closer to 30% now. Uh, so that's a movement in the right direction. And I think if we were going to sustain that movement, to create greater support for reparations, it would be valuable to have a detailed official report that established what the scope is of the harms and damages that have been inflicted upon black American descendants of, of U.S. slavery. So what is now the status in front of our government of H.R. 40, and what are the flaws uh, that you have identified in this bill, and of course, people in the audience are are would be very uh, interested in in understanding the potential of that bill becoming real. Okay, so there are two different things. There's this truth and reconciliation, uh, or actually, it's not the full title. It's, it's just called truth and healing. Truth and healing commission that um, Representative Barbara Lee has proposed. And then there's a separate uh, thing, H.R. 40, which calls for a study commission to look at the question of reparations for black Americans and to uh, you know, provide recommendations right, to Congress. Um, so we are in that, uh, that interesting position of being um, you know, ardent supporters of the Truth and Healing Commission proposal of Representative Lee's, but we do not support HR 40 at all in its current um, in its current form. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that is that uh, we feel that it has both structural problems, but also just in the way that the commission has been uh, reworked 
in the you know in 2021 provide a lot of problems for us. So um, there are basically four major kind of omissions of HR 40 uh, that we would like to point out. You know, the first is it does not identify the eligible recipients. And as Sandy mentioned earlier, you know, for us, these are black American descendants of U.S. slavery. These are descendants of the folks who were, were promised those 40-acre land grants and denied them, you know, people who were um, denied the opportunity to profit from those 40 acres and to uh, pass those profits down across generations to their offspring. Uh, you know, as, as white Americans were able to do through the Homestead Act, uh, you know, um, you know, a program that created wealth that is still very much um, uh, part of the reality of 45 million white individuals today, um, but not the case for black people because they didn't have, uh, they absolutely didn't have 160 acres, they didn't have 40 acres to pass down. All right, so, um, so two-part eligibility criteria. The first is the lineage criteria, individuals who can prove that they are descended from at least one person who was enslaved in the United States. And the second, um, individuals who 12 years prior to the creation of uh, a reparations program or the um, impaneling of reparations commission self-identified as black, African-American, Afro-American, or Negro. So that's the first piece. HR 40 needs to specify who's eligible for reparations. Second, HR 40 does not identify the elimination of the racial wealth gap as one of its primary goals. And we know that today that gap is approximately $840,000 per household. Um, you're looking at, you know, on the low end, $11 trillion to eliminate that racial wealth gap, and that needs to be part of HR 40. Um, the legislation does not indicate that payments should be made directly to the eligible recipients. And as Sandy mentioned earlier, you know, this is absolutely the case in the Golden Standard, uh, you know, reparations uh, programs uh, in the U.S. and abroad. Um, you know, he referenced the Holocaust victims uh, who Germany paid and is paying uh, direct, uh, you know, direct restitution today. Also, the U.S. government, which wasn't even a perpetrator in that case, uh, is paying uh, reparations to American citizens who were harmed by the Holocaust. Um, and again, you mentioned the case of Japanese Americans who um, received uniform payments uh, of redress from the federal government. And then fourthly, H.R. Uh, 40 does not designate the culpable party. Uh, you know, we've been talking about these uh, federal uh, policies, starting with you know, legalizing slavery itself, that advantaged white Americans and disadvantaged black Americans. This is why the federal government must pay the bill. The other reason is the federal government is the only entity that can pay the bill. Uh, $11 trillion is not a trivial amount of money. Um, you know, we hear a lot about uh, local and statewide initiatives um, for quote unquote reparations. Uh, the Evanston, Illinois uh, housing voucher program is one such program. Asheville, North Carolina, near where we are, uh, you know, passed some legislation actually for minority set-asides. Um, Austin, Texas is trying to do some work um, regarding its housing program. Uh, Burlington, Vermont, uh, the state of California, there's quite a, there's a handful of these that are popping up. Mm -hmm. uh, but for us, 
all of these are what we would call racial equity initiatives and not reparations. And we think it's um, confusing, um, you know, um, confusing at best and, and harmful at worst. Uh, we don't think mm-hmm. that these initiatives are an on-ramp to reparations. We think that they are mm-hmm. uh, a distraction. Um, that people will say, well, you've got all these other programs. You know, why do you need a national program? Yeah, yeah. Intentionally marginalizing the issue of reparations for shadow slavery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and, and, and in many cases, the, the programs that these local initiatives are attempting to address, um, like in the Evanson case, um, Austin, and so many others, you know, at the heart of these these cases is redlining, you know, and redlining was a national uh, initiative. So, you know, this is, you know, this clearly points to the need for a national solution. Um, but the other thing, too, when you look at the budgets of all of the cities in the country and all of the states in the country combined, you're looking at a figure of approximately $3.1 trillion. Um, so they would need to take their entire budget for four consecutive years in order to retire the racial wealth gap. And, of course, mm-hmm. in the intervening years, they would have no money on which to operate. So that's not a likely scenario. Um, so the federal government is the COVID party, and federal government is the entity that should pay this debt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, let's, um, let's talk about for a minute uh, what, I mean, you know, I know you only have a few more minutes with us. I'm going to try to hold you over until the next hour for about 15 minutes because I think this is very important. And that is how (laughs) – I hear you laughing, Sandy. (laughs) Yeah, y'all laugh right on. (laughs) But here – here is a, one of the most important things, and and I've been talking about reparations on this microphone in this show since 1985. And one of the things that is very disturbing to me is that we do not have, have not created. Now that we have the meat, we've got the beef, you and and some others have brought us the beef, and people really understand this whole issue of what I call black poverty crisis. What are we going to do about digging down to the state and local level to educate, organize, and mobilize support for a true reparations debt plan, debt collection program for the descendants of shadow, US, the U.S. system of shadow slavery. How are we going to take what you have created to, I'll just, to, to people at the local level to begin to mount the organizing? Because a lot of education has to go into understanding what's wrong with H.R. 40, uh, what black political elites are pushing it and why, who's trying to dilute and chip away at the issue of national reparations uh, in this country. So the education has to happen. 
the mobilization has to happen and 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 we're not doing that in 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 most states and cities across this country we're not uh going into the colleges and universities and organizing uh the support that is necessary for us to as as ruby sales would say press our foot to the metal well i think originally we were hoping when uh, revelations were made about uh, the role of slavery in the development of a number of our colleges and universities, particularly our most prestigious colleges and universities in the United States, that their response would be to organize, form a coalition that would lobby and petition Congress for a national reparations program. That hasn't happened. But there is always the possibility of their students and alumni joining together to push their institutions to take that type of leadership role in the process of trying to seek reparations at the national level. So what you're really asking about is something that, you know, Kirsten and I are not, not real experts at, which yeah. is, is precisely how do you build the social movement. Um, the most that we're able to do is to try to contribute what information and insights we have personally on platforms like yours, uh, you know, to try to, 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 to get this information out more widely and to encourage people to recognize uh, that reparations is, is not something that is a fantasy, that it is something that can be made real. And if it's not made real, we will have perpetual racial economic disparity in the United States. So, um, so you know, our hope is that there will be others who will take up the mantle from the organizational standpoint so that there can be pressure applied to the United States Congress to adopt a comprehensive national program. And, and perhaps it is the students at various colleges and universities who could take a, a strong leadership role in this, in this effort. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was very successful during the Black Power Movement era was to have academies in communities with black high schoolers and college students so that they learned the language of the movement and could be the articulators in organizing and mobilizing. And I don't think that that has happened as well. So um, here you have all of the work that research and the facts. And last week, um, if I had heard the word Tulsa one more time on TV and radio, I was ready to scream. People were talking about Tulsa and not connecting it specifically to a society way in which black people were terrorized during slavery and Jim Crow. And so I want to be able to say to this audience that the time has come that individuals begin to have neighborhood meetings, 
we need to be going to Greek organizations, we need to be going to churches, we need to be going to tenant organizations, we need to be on the platforms, on the trains, and everywhere else we can with both in, teaching in and shop. educating. <laughs> oh, <laughs> in the pandemic, I don't think I've seen a barbershop. <laughs> I have even forgotten about hair salons. But we need to be on the corners with academies, teaching people how to articulate this demand. And we haven't done that yet. Um, you know, and, and I think we need to have major conferences with the, I don't care, the Democratic Socialists of America and the Communists of America and everybody else assisting us in that uh, effort to get people, just as we, just as Randall Robinson was able to get this entire nation to raise their wrists, their fists, and say, free Mandela. We need to be having black people all over this country, everywhere you go, saying reparations now. And that hasn't happened. I like it. You agree? I like it. Absolutely. So I'm saying to people, if you're at a university and our college or you work at the um, Boys and Girls Club, Start organizing learning circles so that people can articulate, understand what this is. And, and for people, you know, just like we say, when, when white folks make racist comments, you just say, you just said something racist. When black folks say, I don't know if I want reparations, you just say, you just said something stupid. <laughs> <laughs> We have got to get into that mode because that is how mobilization begins. Um, and, you know, I was, I said to my um, 19-year-old grandson the other day, who just finished reading your book, From Here to Equality, write a study guide. If you write a study guide, then you can write a flyer, you can write a rap song, you can do anything that you want with the material that is in that book. And organize um, some high school kids. You know, he tutors at one of the high schools in Boston. Organize those kids and start teaching them about reparations. And we have got to do that. We don't have a radio station on the Internet that's called Reparations Now, <laughs> and we need one. <laughs> yeah. um, That's a great idea. That is a great I love idea. that idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, your, your I can give you a radio station. I can give you a radio station tomorrow, and you can have it five days a week. I got lots of radio stations. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, and for those of you who are listening our Common Ground does sponsor a Facebook page, and um, the Facebook page uh, <clears throat> is um, called Reparations. Okay. Remembering and repairing 
you know, I got so many Facebook pages, it's ridiculous, but it's it's called Remembering and Repairing the Past. And it's right there on Facebook, and we provide all of this information right there every day, and you can sign up, join it, like it, whatever they do. But Great. we have we, got we, to we do will something. Refer people to that. Okay, I'll, I'll send you a, a link. And, and I've had yeah. this since, two, since 2009. Um, wow. That Excellent. Facebook page has been available, and and we and we will do more of it now that uh, we have had th- with this conversation. But Sandy and 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 Kirsten, let me ask you: uh, How do we get? How do we begin this? How do we employ this demand, given the lack of a political infrastructure that we can trust? Now, when I say we can trust, that is my own judgment about how politics are played, whether it's a black face or some white people talking black. So... (laughs) (laughs) Um, How do we begin to work it so that black people who we have elected to public office begin to understand the basis and the flaws of H.R. 40? Because they're not going to start over again. You know, they 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 just they're going to be leaning on this. They've got the president now talking about. I don't think he used the word reparations, but he was talking about repairing and healing and blah blah. But uh, how do we begin to bend the political black political elites, specifically the black congressional caucus? Yeah. How do we begin to bend them to our will? Because I mean, I, I mean I I'm very, we have to, I'm very we have practiced to, we have in. To, go ahead. Well, so I think we have to build the organization that we trust. Mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, you know, put your energy, you know, I would say, into creating this new thing that, you know, achieves these objectives that are going to you know, deliver true reparations. I mean, we can spend a lot of time trying to convert people who are, you know, opponents, but I think our our energy, our time, our resources would be better spent trying to create an organization that is led by people who we trust. And also related to that is the question of who we actually do support to elect to Congress. Precisely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's there's uh, a number of people who probably we should not continue yeah. to reelect to Congress, and, uh, and I think, know, that has to be addressed. I think it's important to you know to seize opportunities to um, you know when they're at the mic, you know individuals who are in that space to ask them pointedly where they stand mm-hmm. on these issues. And to ask mm-hmm. them to, to parse their uh, their responses, 
Um, and when you see people hedging or in some cases just outright saying this is not something that's going to happen or, or um, you know, I think it's a great idea but the timing isn't right or um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a signal. Yeah. And that's a very important mm-hmm. signal that we need to pay attention mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that calling people to account, I think, is really important. Mhm, mhm. I, you know, it, it's almost like I have fantasies of um, the act, act up movement uh, in the in the '60s on um, the science and medical access for victims of um, HIV, AIDS. Mm-hmm. That at some point we're gonna have to we're gonna have to call these people out and we're gonna have to do it in a way in which it is made clear that we no longer they lo- no longer enjoy our trust and that at some point people are gonna have to be called saboteurs. Um, mm-hmm. And and I say that with a great deal of seriousness. And my concern about the black working class, black political infrastructure, and and my concern that it does not exist, um, is is really a critical uh, impediment for any reparations plan. And 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 what we've got to stop saying, and I will thump myself on the head for saying it. We cannot tolerate any reparations plan. We have to tolerate a reparations plan that addresses the incursion of white supremacy that has cut us off and put us in a wealth gap that we cannot recover without it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no self, uh, self-improvement plan <laughs> that's going to get no. us, you no. know, out no. of this, out yeah. of this hole. No. Mm-hmm. There's no the uh, book. two hundred to three hundred billion dollar plan from the president of the United States that's going to close the racial wealth gap of eleven point three trillion dollars. Well, they don't even build bridges. They're not willing to build bridges for themselves, so I doubt uh, very seriously, unless something drastic happens, that um, they're going to want to build bridges for black wealth in this country. And and I say that with a great deal of um, intrepidation, but at the same time, being a realist looking at where we are. This is not only uh, a a moral issue. It is not only a constitutional issue. It is not only an economic issue. It is a political one. We can't go to the Federal Reserve Bank and take the money and punch Yemen in the in yelling in the in the throat <laughs> we're going to have to work <laughs> no, we another can't do one that. of my fantasies. <laughs> I, mean, I mean she's a friend of mine. I don't think I want to punch her. I know. I I know. Um but um they're not going to give it up easily, folks. 
it is it this is not something that will happen easily um and we can't become um impatient and we have to stay on a realistic time frame around this now sandy help me out here because i've been waiting for reparations ever since i i left gary went back to boston and that's all i could think about that there are people who are really invested in understanding where we are as it relates to where we've been. So give us some kind of timeline. How how much time do I have to develop some of these academies? Uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an economist, and so I'm horrible at forecasting. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I will say this. Um, you know, I, I think it, this is a more propitious mo- moment for moving forward on this front than any I've seen in, in my lifetime. So even mm-hmm. though there's a reservoir of about 30% of Americans who I think will never, never change their perspective on this issue, uh, I think that there's another 70% of the American population that would be open, at least open to uh to be beginning to consider reparations as a serious idea. And and as mm-hmm. as we said, there's been a sea change in the proportion of whites who actually support reparations. I'd say an awful younger Americans, Americans yeah. have been mm-hmm. almost overwhelmingly supportive of the idea of reparations and that's extremely mm-hmm. encouraging. Yeah, but it, it yeah, will that, be essential that is to, encouraging. Yeah. It will be essential to change who's in Congress. I mean the the current Congress is not going to pass a comprehensive national reparations plan. Uh, so I can't really say, Dennis, whether this will happen uh, within the next the next few years or it will take longer than that. But I do encourage people to be patient, as you said, because if we settle for low-hanging fruit that is less than the whole package, we will never get the whole package. Yes. We we can we we cannot afford to settle. We have one shot at this, one shot. Yeah. Yes, do we, Doctor, if we William, have a minute. Uh huh. You, 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 you got thirty more minutes. <laughs> we, one, we we would like to, to 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 discuss one last thing, and that is how um, in the last two months HR forty has been revised. I'm not sure that your listeners are aware uh, of what happened, how it was transformed during the recent markup session. Yeah, for the worst. Yeah, for the worst. Yeah, that's the dilution. Right. So, um, you know, originally uh, the commission, when, when John Conyers first introduced uh, H.R. 40 in 1989, uh, it provided uh, – uh, it proposed seven a seven member commission. Um, that number ballooned to thirteen in twenty fifteen, and now it's fifteen commission members. Interesting. Um, uh, the Deputy American Redress Commission uh, began at seven, and ultimately uh, had nine uh, total uh, members who served. Um, the uh, one of the, another change is that they increased the uh, the budget 
for the commission. So originally it was $8 million, then it changed to 12, and now it's $20 million. Um, the salaries for the commissioners uh, can be up to uh, executive level four, which is $172,000 a year. And they've extended the length of time that the commission could do its work by about half, so a longer period of time to earn that, uh, that salary. And it's interesting because the majority of commissions, over 75% of commissions, uh, don't receive salary at all. You know, certainly they, mm-hmm. these individuals are uh, reimbursed for their expenses, their travel expenses, and their administrative staff, you know, the operational staff, absolutely is uh, salaried, but the commissioners themselves are not paid. And for us, you know, we view this as a sacred mission, and we don't believe that these individuals should be paid. And, you know, they are not doing the research. I mean, their, their job is yeah. to mm-hmm. review all the materials that, you know, research teams produce. And, you know, presumably, you know, that would not uh, preclude one from continuing in one's present employment. So we don't really understand what's going on with these, these salaries. Um, they also uh, changed the legislation uh, within the last two months to um, indicate that no government officials and no government employees may serve as commissioners. So no mayors, no governors, no cabinet members, no members of the House or the Senate may serve. This is very unusual. <laughs> um, you know, uh, again, I point to the, the case of the Japanese American uh, Redress Commission uh, had two sitting members of the House and two sitting members of the Senate who served. And, you know, when you have government officials uh, on a commission like this, it dramatically increases the likelihood that there's going to be integrity and credibility. I mean, these are individuals who, uh, you know, have responsibilities to the public. Um, but this commission, uh, you know, the writers of this commission, have, uh, this legislation have deemed that that is not a priority. Um, they also have requested uh, exclusion from the Federal Advisory Commission Act, uh, and this was um, created to, to make certain that commissions operate in the in the light of day. So, you know, the uh, the act itself uh, focuses on things like public involvement, public hearings, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, posting in a public space the the meeting dates and agendas, making the transcripts, the notes, the minutes available to the public. This commission now, uh, as written, is excluded from all of those public, um, you know, awareness uh, mm-hmm, requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, the, a quorum is established as seven of 15, so not even a majority. That's odd. Not a majority, not a supermajority, but seven. Um, so less than half. And then the director for the commission uh, will be an administrative post. So this is not this is someone who is not part of the commission. But that individual uh, has been given the authority to identify six of the commissioners. So the president uh, picks three. The uh, president pro tempore picks three. Speaker of the House picks three. And this director picks Six. So, you know, if, if, if something comes up and the director, you know, uh, he or she has the support of the six commissioners that he or she uh, selects, all they would need is one other person 
to basically run the table. To be present. To be, you know, to be yeah. present, to be present and, mm-hmm. and, and conduct mm-hmm. business, which we think is really, really bizarre. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's like what exactly is going on here? Uh, and it's just not when really clear say, to us. Like, Kirsten, when you say they changed, who is they? So these are the changes that were made during the markup session that occurred okay. Okay. Uh, two months ago. Um, you know, I don't know the specific individuals. I mean, oftentimes it's lobbyists, uh-huh. you know, who are writing this legislation. We do know that two organizations, Narcan and COBRA, uh, were involved with the writing of the original H.R. 40. Uh, you know, and, and they revised it in 2015, between 2015, 2016, and 2017, 2018. And you know, I, you know, I, it, it makes it, 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 it makes a lot of sense that they were involved in this, these most recent changes, but I don't, we don't know that we for a fact. We don't have direct evidence. evidence. Well, Ron, Ron um, Daniels is going to be with us at the end of the month um, uh, to talk you about put these questions the debt. That is okay. Yeah, should ask him yeah. About and I will put I will put the, the questions bill. to them, and I'll, I'll also do some 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 research about this because here, once again, folks. We we are victimized by gerrymandering, and now we're victimized by Jerry rigging. Jesus <laughs> Christ! <laughs> I, uh, yeah. It, yeah. You know, uh, people do not understand. If people do not understand that some there are very many competent and ethical people who work in our government. Um, and they are under obligation to ensure that they do not participate in any process where unethical behavior uh, um, is operable. And this is real concerning to me. The other is that we we have just been plagued over the, the last, uh, 25 years um, by programs that have been built by people who do not understand how government works. And so the mechanisms here, when you say, when you outline these things, Kirsten, these, these changes, you're really looking uh, at a group could, who, that could clearly come up with the biggest train wreck and it will become another point of both divisiveness and um, and and controversy and conflict that can derail everything. That that's, right. that's I mean, incredible. You, you have to you have to wonder. I mean, the changes that were made in the markup session are such that you know you you make the the legislation um, you know an easy target for opponents. To say, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. this is not this is not uh, how this should be done. Um, you know, it looks kind of opportunistic. You know, for the people who believe they're going to be serving on the commission, um, mm-hmm. it'd be one thing if the changes had to do with, um, you know, making certain that reparations are going to be paid to Black Americans since U.S. slavery. But all the changes in the markup. Uh, had to do with, you know, changing the way the commission itself operates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we certainly just, will be deeply problematic. 
Yeah, we, we'll certainly here be uh, visiting uh, what is happening. I, w- I was aware about who was, uh, um, how people were being nominated on the commission, but I wasn't aware about the other changes. Um, it's really problematic. And when we talk to NARC and Ron Daniels, and whoever's coming at us from Encobra, we certainly will will uh, raise those issues. Sandy Darity. Yeah, I, I think one of one of the central issues before we go, one of the central issues that I think needs to be raised is the question of their advocacy of something that they call a national reparations trust authority that will manage the funds rather than having the funds be completely a matter of the discretion of the individual eligible recipients. And wow. uh, mm-hmm. they do not elaborate about who will be responsible for handling this, this trust authority and handling the money. Uh, and that's something that I would love to hear uh, an elaboration on from them. Hmm. Well, they, I don't they've think, been very. You know, it's interesting, you know, because because I think because because NARC and Cobra have the word reparations in their names, a lot of black people who are you know, people who are aware of them think, oh, you know, these these are the good guys, um, but they have not done their homework and looked to see what you know what these organizations are proposing as reparations. Well, all they have to do is go back and look at the history of Cobra from 1980 to 1983 and look at how that organization was essentially decimated by the politics and control issues going on and divisiveness going on there, which is when Mm. I stopped being a member of (laughs) NCOBRA. So um, we, we have to begin to get everybody involved here that this is around, that this has to be some grassroots management and control and education and direction uh, in whatever we do, whatever, however we are directing our efforts to get the debt paid. Dr. William Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen, the co-authors, and and you, I, I just have to say this, and and Sandy, you owe me fifty dollars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know you owe me fifty dollars. I want oh. my check. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I I do have to say that. From here to equality, reparations for black Americans in the 21st century, if you have not read it, if it is not part of your library, you can I, you can go to Our Common Ground and I can direct you as to how to get the book. I can, I'm, on my website, I provide somebody that was so kind to put up the first 45 pages or something like that. Uh, and you can read it for free for 45 pages. 
but it is the oh, preeminent. Don't do that. Please don't do that. No, no, it's a website. It's a website that, that offers it. I'll tell you who it is. Google.com <laughs> provides 45 pages of your book for free. <laughs> but oh, um, oh, we didn't know that. <laughs> but um, this yeah. is where you start if you have not started. This is where you start. Uh, Sandy and Kirsten, I look forward to having you both back. Uh, I know that you've had a tough day. You you are everywhere, and I'm so glad that you are <laughs> everywhere. You have given reparations and the black wealth gap and black inequities a face. And I am so grateful as a as a citizen, as a black citizen for it. So thank you so very much for being with us. Um and thank you, Jessica. Yeah. We to I really appreciate this is just a uh, has been a great, great a conversation that we need to continue to have. We're going to be here for the next three weeks going forward talking about reparations, the debt that is owed. You can stop in. You can call in at any time. Send me a note and say, hey, I have some more to say. <laughs> and you are most welcome. Um, Sandinarity so has been an our common ground voice since 2009. Um, and we are so appreciative to be able to have his expertise, his genius, and his spirit. Sandy, are you still playing harmonica? I am still playing harmonica. <laughs> That's why I appreciated uh, the blues interlude that you provided. <laughs> you know, most people do not know two things, that your father – was a, a prominent scholar and professor, and that Kirsten Mullen is your wife. But both both, both <laughs> are true. <laughs> yep. Most people didn't know that. I mean, I've known you since 2009. I knew of you. Uh, I heard of you. After I left Sloan, and by the way, I'm having my 48th anniversary luncheon sometime in September or something like that. Uh, do, does your class have a luncheon, an annual luncheon? Maybe because it's too big. Oh, you mean for, 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 for my undergraduate school? No, for Sloan. Weren't you at Sloan I, I was, at MIT? I, I was not a Sloan fellow. I was not a Sloan fellow. Oh, okay. Fellow. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, at Sloan, yeah. our class is doing the 70s. I, I was We're a so Danforth fellow, and I'm not even sure that program still exists. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. okay. Well, yeah. my class, uh, which is the class of 1973, uh, we have a luncheon every year. We didn't oh, have a luncheon. Yeah. We, we had a digital luncheon, a Zoom luncheon last year. Um, but we are getting together for our 40, 48th anniversary, which um, May 18th would have been our class day or whatever. 
<laughs> so thank you so very much. We've enjoyed this conversation. We're coming back at you both um, to continue it in the future. Great. Right. Thank you, Thank Dennis. you so much. Take care. Take good, good care. Good night. Good night, everybody. You too. Well, uh... I love exchanging um, harmonica blues with uh, Sandy Darity, but. It's just so important uh, to look at what these two people have done uh, in raising the issue of reparations in this country prior to the publication of the book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, when we had discourse about uh, the black poverty crisis in America we had no meat, no factual information in which to build the case. And this book takes us uh, confronting racism and discrimination and how it has choked economic opportunity for blacks at nearly every turn. And the book confronts the injustices head on and makes the most comprehensive case to date for economic reparations for U.S. descendants of chattel slavery. And perhaps one day the debt will be paid. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and in the time that we have left, we'll be talking with you more about the debt that is owed. We'll be right back. I would like people to pay close attention not only to what happened in Tulsa in 1921, but the entire wave of white massacres that took place from the end of the Civil War up until World War II. These massacres not only cost black people their lives, but also resulted in extensive damage to black property or the appropriation of that property by whites. I think people need to have a much better understanding of the history of white violence in the United States and how that's connected to the racial wealth gap. But if we're going to address the question of restitution for black Americans for the cumulative effects of slavery, the period of Jim Crow or legal segregation in the United States accompanied by white terror campaigns, and ongoing atrocities like mass incarceration, police executions of unarmed blacks, discrimination in uh, labor markets, in credit markets, in housing markets, then we need something that is going to uh, focus on the racial wealth gap, which to my way of thinking captures the cumulative intergenerational consequences of this entire trajectory of harms. The GI Bill is established in such a way after World War II that it's administered in a decentralized fashion which gave Southern authorities complete discretion over who would get the benefits. So, for example, in the state of Mississippi, only two GIs who were black veterans received any, any mortgage support from the GI Bill. 
in the book that I've just completed with uh, Kirsten Mullen, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, we argue that the payments might be made in the form of endowments or a trust account, where individuals would be allowed to spend the interest off the account in any given year, but could only dip into the principal subject to approval for a plan of action or a proposal that they develop. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health. It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services the Ad Council and the state. I'm all about that. About that. Obama says, we're not going to have boots on the ground, but now you got over a thousand soldiers. You know why there's going to be more? Because they're going to start killing some of those that we've already pulled there now. Because exactly. if you can't get 30,000 Shiites to stand their ground and they're fully armed, against a thousand Sunnis, and they drop their weapons, drop their uniforms, Drop the draws and run. What have you got? Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. The Alpha Show. The Alpha Show. Fridays, 10 p.m. Just damn. Advanced political pushback. Talk radio on TruthWorks Network. Three Friday, he's all about politics. 10 p.m. TruthWorks Network. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves, broadcasting bold, brave, black. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Join us each Saturday, 10 p.m. A program note for your interest in the month of June 2021, Our Common Ground will host a series of discussion on the issue of reparations for descendants of the American chattel slavery system. Joining us will be Dr. William Sandy Darity, Dr. Derek Hamilton, Dr. Ron Daniels, 
in COBRA and additionally we'll be examining the activities related HR 40 and the Congressional Black Caucus. We hope you'll join us. Look at her. She's a bad Uh, so to the extent that we can anticipate that there might be some sort of backlash among the minority of Americans who remain opposed to reparations that could result in violent outbreaks, uh, it would be necessary to be prepared for that eventuality. Uh, and it might be essential to have uh, the, uh, the National Guard and the military on, on notice to be prepared to uh, to take action against any types of violent outbreaks that are conducted by white terrorists. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Thank you for being here with us at Our Common Ground tonight in the first episode of our series, Reparations, the Debt That is Owed. Next week, coming up in the second episode, will be Dr. James Taylor, who is now the chair of the Reparations Commission for the City of San Francisco. And we think that you will enjoy hearing what he has to say about how reparations are being discussed at the city level. Our number is 347-838-9852. So that we are clear, let's go back and review what A. Kirsten Mullen, the co-author of the book that I highly recommend, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. I am on my, I think, fourth reading of this book because I think we have to really understand what the nuances here as we make this demand. Reparations are a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for grievous injustice. Where African Americans are concerned, the grievous injustices that make the case for reparations include slavery, legal segregation, or Jim Crow, and ongoing discrimination and stigmatization. ARC, A-R-C, the, the acronym that stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure, characterizes the three essential elements of the reparations program that we are advocating. Acknowledgement, redress, and closure are components of an effective reparations project. Acknowledgement involves recognition and admission of the wrong by the present, the perpetrators or the beneficiaries of the injustice. For African Americans, this means the receipt of a formal apology and a commitment for redress on the part of the American people as a whole, a national act of declaration that a great wrong has been committed. But beyond an apology, acknowledgement requires those who benefited from the exercise of the atrocities to recognize the advantages they gained and commit themselves to the cause of redress. 
redress potentially can take two forms, not necessarily mutually exclusive, restitution or atonement. Restitution is the restoration of survivors to their condition before the injustice occurred or to a condition they might have attained had the injustice not taken place. Of course, it's impossible to restore those who were enslaved to a condition preceding their enslavement, not only because those who were enslaved are now deceased, but also because many thousands were born into slavery. But it is possible to move their descendants toward a more equitable position commensurate with the status they would have attained in the absence of the injustices. Atonement as an alternate alternative form of redress occurs when perpetrators or beneficiaries meet conditions of forgiveness that are acceptable to the victim. Achieving these elements of a reparations program requires good faith negotiations between those who were wronged and the wrongdoers. There is no existing mechanism for establishing when African-Americans collectively will have reached an agreement that sufficient steps have been taken to justify forgiveness. Consequently, atonement is difficult to accomplish. That is why in our proposal, we treat restitution as the appropriate form of redress. We have clear metrics for determining when restitution has been achieved that we do not have for establishing the same for atonement. Specifically, restitution for African-Americans would eliminate racial disparities in wealth, income, education, health, sentencing, and incarceration, political participation, and subsequent opportunities to engage in American political and social life. It will require not only an endeavor to compensate for past repression and exploitation, but also an endeavor to offset stubborn existing obstacles to full black participation in American political and social life. Reparations demonstrably would be effective if an improved position for blacks is associated with sharp and enduring reductions in racial disparities, particularly economic disparities like racial wealth inequality and corresponding sharp and enduring improvements in black well-being. Closure involves mutual reconciliation between African-Americans and the beneficiaries of slavery, legal segregation, and ongoing discrimination towards blacks. Whites and blacks have come to terms over the past, confront the present, and unite to create a new and transformed United States of America. Once the reparations program is executed and racial inequality eliminated, African-Americans would make no further claims for race-specific policies on their behalf from the American government on the assumption that no new race-specific injustices are inflicted upon them. Uh, so before I... I keep getting muted and unmuted.
Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. A conversation with a description of what we mean by reparations. Reparations are a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for grievous injustice. Where African Americans are concerned, the grievous injustices that make the case for reparations include slavery, legal segregation, or Jim Crow, and ongoing discrimination and stigmatization. ARC, A-R-C, the, the acronym that stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure, characterizes the three essential elements of the reparations program that we are advocating. Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure are components of an effective reparations project. Acknowledgement involves recognition and admission of the wrong by the, present, the perpetrators or the beneficiaries of the injustice. For African Americans, this means the receipt of a formal apology and a commitment for redress on the part of the American people as a whole, a national act of declaration that a great wrong has been committed. But beyond an apology, acknowledgement requires those who benefited from the exercise of the atrocities to recognize the advantages they gained and commit themselves to the cause of redress. Redress potentially can take two forms, not necessarily mutually exclusive, restitution or atonement. Restitution is the restoration of survivors to their condition before the injustice occurred or to a condition they might have attained had the injustice not taken place. Of course, it's impossible to restore those who were enslaved to a condition preceding their enslavement, not only because those who were enslaved are now deceased, but also because many thousands were born into slavery. But it is possible to move their descendants toward a more equitable position commensurate with the status they would have attained in the absence of the injustices. Atonement as an alternate alternative form of redress occurs when perpetrators or beneficiaries meet conditions of forgiveness that are acceptable to the victim. Achieving these elements of a reparations program requires good faith negotiations between those who were wronged and the wrongdoers. There is no existing mechanism for establishing when African Americans collectively will have reached an agreement that sufficient steps have been taken to justify forgiveness. Consequently, atonement is difficult to accomplish. That is why in our proposal, we treat restitution as the appropriate form of redress. We have clear metrics for determining when restitution has been achieved that we do not have for establishing the same for atonement. Specifically, restitution for African-Americans would eliminate racial disparities in wealth, income, education, health, sentencing, and incarceration, political participation, and subsequent opportunities to engage in American political and social life. It will require not only an endeavor to compensate for past repression and exploitation, but also an endeavor to offset stubborn existing obstacles to full black participation in American political and social life. Reparations demonstrably would be effective if an improved position for blacks is associated with sharp and enduring reductions in racial disparities, particularly economic disparities like racial wealth inequality and corresponding sharp and enduring improvements in black well-being. Closure involves mutual reconciliation between African-Americans and the beneficiaries of slavery, legal segregation, and ongoing discrimination towards blacks. 
Whites and Blacks have come to terms over the past, confront the present, and unite to create a new and transformed United States of America. Once the reparations program is executed and racial inequality eliminated, African Americans would make no further claims for race-specific policies on their behalf from the American government on the assumption that no new race-specific injustices are inflicted upon them. That even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried, that we'll forever be tied together victorious, not because we will never again know defeat. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. Thank you for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. Join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you, reminding you to trust your struggle. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.